So in the summer of uh, 2013, <clears throat> the entertainment media just had a field day uh, when they found out that the son of actor Will Smith, Jaden Smith, had asked for his first 15th birthday to be emancipated from his parents. Emancipation is basically a request to be uh, divorced from them. He, he basically told them, I want my own place. And, uh, you know, in the weeks to come, uh, Will Smith ended up saying that it was a little bit exaggerated, the story that went around. But it did lead to some very interesting interviews where he talked to people about why he was thinking about this. Listen to some of these sound bites from him and from his wife. Will Smith says, in, generally, in my house, we don't believe in punishment. From the time Jaden was five or six, we would sit him down. And all he has to do is be able to explain why what he did was the right thing for his life. I was brought up with, you don't even talk to your parents about what your opinion is. You're not even allowed to have an opinion. Even his wife, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, had the, sort of the same sort of views when she said this. She said, you know, at 15 years old, I remember Jaden to this day coming because it was the most heartbreaking moments of my life. And, he said, and I said to him, You've got to be, you got to a point where you're telling me now straight up, Mom, I have to leave here and live my life. And she said, I remember thinking to myself, as devastated as I was, I was like, he was right. The time is now. He's 15. It's time for him to leave the house. <laughs> now, some parents are laughing because you're going like, our 15-year-olds can leave the house? That's, a, that's like a, an option, a possibility? <clears throat> now, look, I don't have any interest this morning in debating the parent, parenting philosophies of, of Hollywood stars by any stretch. But I just want to illustrate that what you get coming out of the themes of those statements is the defining cultural mentality of our, our generation. And you'll hear thoughtful people use a phrase to describe it. They'll say, this generation lives by what we might call expressive individualism. You ever heard that phrase? Uh, what is that? Well, Trevor Wax is a guy who writes for the Gospel Coalition online wrote a series of wonderful art, uh, articles back in 2018 talking about just how important this idea, this philosophy of life really is to this generation. Here's how he defines expressive individualism. He says, expressive individualism states that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world and forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or even religious authorities might try to tell you. That's it. He goes on to talk about these working beliefs that sort of surround the movement. He says there's six of them. First of all, individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, that is the highest good. You know, you do you, bro, or something. <laughs> Number two, traditions and institutions which restrict your individual self-expression, they have to be reshaped or, 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 or deconstructed or even completely destroyed. Number three, the world is getting better and technology is what's ushering it in. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance. And of course, any deviation from that standard is not to be tolerated. Number five. Large structures and institutions are inherently suspicious. Number six, there really is no external authority outside of your own wishes. And for that reason, personal authenticity is the number one thing to be praised. Expressive individually. That is the worldview that Jaden Smith was being brought up in to the degree that his life was like what his parents described on those talk shows. 
But for our purposes this morning, it means that as we launch into the study we're about to do this fall, is that it could not be more counterintuitive for the way in which other people view the world. In other words, Christians will never sound crazier, I I dare say even less relevant to the watching world, when we begin to discuss what we see introduced for us in the opening words of the second book of the Bible. Why? Well, because this book, uh, this book of Exodus, answers the most fundamental questions about what it means to be the people of God. I mean, seriously, how did we get here this morning? You know, what is it? Why are we here this morning? Because it may come as a surprise to some of you that your presence here this morning is actually the result of God's stated purposes for you in your life. But it's going to go against the grain of what we oftentimes think is what God is doing in our life, because for most of us, we grew up with this notion that what God cared about was saving us from our sins so that we could go to heaven when we die. But of course, that's a very anemic view of what God came to do. And if that's all you have in terms of your religious experience, it shows that you have become a child of the age. You've listened to the world more than to what God has to say, I would submit. But I can state the general direction of our entire year for the next year of preaching here at Christ Prez. We're going to go through Exodus in the fall, and then we're going to do Ephesians in the spring. as simply saying this, what is God's intention in saving you? And actually what it was is to fashion you into a people, to join you to a group that he's moving in and that he's moving through. And to the degree that you've imbibed the culture's way of looking at the world, and don't be fooled, every one of us has been affected by this mentality, then what we're going to do is we're going to live as individualistic Christians. And that's bad for at least a couple of reasons. Individualism in Christianity means that you're going to neuter tons of passages in the Scripture that won't make a bit of sense because it's speaking to a corporate body. But then secondly, you're going to miss the heart of what God has called you to do as a Christian, what our mission is. Honestly, for most of us, don't we think about what God wants me to do purely in terms of, um, of personal piety? What does God want me to do? He wants me to read my Bible. He wants me to pray. He wants me to be a good father or wife or a husband of a family. He wants me to stay away from bad movies and, and you know, boycott companies that disagree with my political affiliation. That's what he wants me to do, right? That is boatloads of American Christianity in our day. But if God's intention is just as much corporate as it is personal, then we're going to see that he's amassed a group of people to carry out his task of fixing the world. And it's all right here in the opening verses of the book of Exodus. So I want to unpack it under three headings. Number one, you need to see that this book is connected to the past. Number two, that it reminds us of the real battle. And then number three, it shows us that we are redeemed to heal. So first of all, We are connected to the past. Now look, you can't see it in your English translations, but the very first Hebrew word in the book of Exodus is the word and. And so right out of the gate, you get something that's very important as you begin to look at the story that follows. This is a continuation of what God started in the book of Genesis. And we spent the summer sort of walking through the narrative uh, passages of the first books of the Bible, but we really didn't get to where the whole story centers and kind of hinges on when God calls a guy named Abraham. You know, after watching very depressingly and, and, and angrily his good creation dissolve into utter chaos after Adam and Eve, you know, uh, sin, 
God picks one person out and he calls him out to a new home and a new land. And along the way, he begins to introduce his new intentions for his life. You get him in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to this. God says to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, here it is, listen to this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's about all the families. Did you hear the emphasis there? The reason why Abraham is being called is so that God could raise up a group of called out ones to help heal the world. That's it. Or in the Bible's terminology, to be a blessing to the nations. That's the way it talks about it. And so throughout the early generations, Abraham's sons and grandsons, this big picture is hanging over it all. You know, Isaac and Jacob and all of his sons, everybody that you had listed in verses 2 and 3 are there for this great purpose. But of course, as per usual, (laughs) things don't go smoothly. Abraham, it turns out, is a liar and gets busted twice for lying. Isaac, it turns out, spoils his sons and ruins both of them for it. Finally, Jacob lives in the midst of all kinds of personal ruin and ends up having to move his entire family down to Egypt, of all places, in order to sort of keep this family in safety. But of course, God's still at work. He's still protecting Joseph while he's down there and bring about the salvation of the people of God. But here's what I want you to remember. That story is still being told in the book of Exodus. That's the big deal. The difference is, is you get the story in just much more dramatic relief here. In other words, it's not unfair to say that the story that we're about to dive into this semester ends up becoming the lens throughout which the rest of the Bible would understand how God's going to work in the world. Okay, that was was an important point. (laughs) Exodus becomes the paradigm, the template, if you will, for understanding the rest of the Bible. There's a pastor commentator up in Chicago named Kent Hughes who says that the Exodus was really the great miracle of the Old Covenant. He says the prophets begin to look back to it as a paradigm of salvation. The Psalms talk about God as the one who brought the people out of Egypt. Even in the New Testament, the writers use the Exodus to explain salvation in Christ. Hughes says this, he says, In some ways, the whole Bible is an extended interpretation of Exodus. Huh. Now look, bear with me for a second. Now I want you to dig through the cobwebs in your brain back to junior high when your English teacher taught you a little English trope called the synecdoche. You remember this? A synecdoche is nothing more than a a figure of speech where the part represents the whole. And we talk this way all the time, for instance. You know, when Mark Antony in the play Julius Caesar says, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, he's using synecdoche. As a rhetorical device, ears, of course, stands for the listening part of the Roman people, which is exactly what he wants to appeal to. Exodus is in some ways a synecdoche of the entire Bible. It's the part that can be seen the whole all through it. And if you don't believe me, fast forward to the Mount of Transfiguration a few thousand years later, because Jesus takes his three closest disciples to a mountain and reveals his true nature to him. You remember this story? And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah long since dead, appear to him. And they start talking with him. Well, guess what they're talking about? Well, you find it in Luke 9, 31, which you're saying, yes, Les, of course. I remember that sermon you preached on it last fall, right? It's exactly what you were thinking. It says, and they spoke to him about his 
Exodus. That's what they were talking about. Look, you've heard me say this on a number of occasions, but we believe here at Christ Pres that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Well, the Exodus is the narrative version of all that Jesus came to fulfill. It's all right there. And that's the story. And therefore, you've got to have it to have this essential piece to understanding the Bible as a whole. So my first point is that it's connected to the past. Secondly, and we've got to buckle up for this one, we are reminded of the battle, or at least what the real battle is. Because what is that essential piece that we're being told here? What is God doing in the world? Well, there's another hidden clue in verse 5. Look at it again. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Huh, that's an odd detail. Uh, Why do we need to know the number of people exactly who went down to Egypt? Well, remember, the Bible rarely throws out sort of random numbers and details. So when it does, you need to pay attention. And as it turns out, the number 70 is kind of a significant number throughout the Bible, especially when it pertains to the people of God. But in order to get at that significance, we got to do a little Bible study this morning, okay? So if you want to sketch down references, you can do that, but just try to follow the big picture as we go along here, all right? Look, go back to Genesis chapter 10, okay? Because after the flood, it's right after the flood, Moses includes in the narrative this long list of the nations of the world that were descended from Noah and his family. Well, as it turns out, if you count up all of those nations, guess how many there were? Seventy. Hmm. In other words, it's saying that the people of God inhabit this world of nations that themselves will have a part to play in God's purposes. There's diversity. There's unity in the peoples of the world. And so God's calling of his people is to be a blessing to all of those 70 nations. (laughs) But there's a fascinating story background. Actually, I I was largely unaware of until I started this study through Exodus to the division of the nations in the early parts of Genesis. Because apparently, bear with me, Moses believed that when the people of the world were scattered at the Tower of Babel, and they began to, to multiply after Noah, that God had divided up the nations and set one of his heavenly beings, his divine beings, over those nations. Okay? To sort of influence them in some way. Bear with me. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, Moses says this when he's preaching his last sermon to the people. He says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the, and your translations read, sons of God. Well, those sons of God were what we refer to as these heavenly spiritual beings. But the Lord's portion, his people, Jacob, is his allotted heritage. So look, if you were not here on July 14th, that's okay. Go back and pick up our study through the divine story and get a little more information about this. But the short version is simply that the Bible teaches that God keeps a heavenly staff team of sorts all around him and his people with whom he consults and people who he helps execute his will. Some of these divine beings are obedient to his will. Some of them are in active rebellion. So that Jewish scholar Robert Alter puts it this way. He says, in the older world picture registered in a variety of biblical texts, God is surrounded in heaven by a celestial entourage of divine beings who are nevertheless subordinate to the supreme God. But Moses here assumes that God, when he allotted portions of the earth to the various peoples, 
also allowed each of those people their own lesser, there it is, son of God. One of these Elohim that we talked about this summer. This is what Moses then is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. He says, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, that you're drawn away and you bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. <laughs> Look, in other words, these spiritual beings, these, these angelic beings, were given some measure of, of, of charge over what became known as the nations. A word you're going to hear over and over again in the Old Testament if you read through it. But the humans that occupied those spaces among those people were supposed to guard themselves and not bow down and worship those people as if they were the God. But of course they did. <laughs> Go back and read the Old Testament. They kept over and over again disobeying God in that way. Now look, it really is okay if you're saying, this was five minutes, I'll never get back in my life less. Um, I don't know exactly what this is for. Bear with me. Look, the assumption among these early writers was that there were actually 70 of these nations. So whenever you hear the Bible speak of the nations, it's often referring to not only the physical people inhabiting those places, but also the spiritual forces that are trying to tempt them into idolatry. Does that make sense? God's people are about to be in the business, though, of going out and displacing the allegiance that people have pledged to these false gods, which is why over and over again the Bible is speaking against idolatry. So when Moses goes out of his way to say that there were 70 people that were going into Egypt, do you see what he's doing? <laughs> he's signaling. He's saying these 70 is are showing that, that God is on the move. There's a new 70 people. He's not forgotten what the mission was. We're headed out into the nations to begin again. Y'all, this is, this is the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be the people of God because God is fixing the world. And he's going to do so by choosing some who are called out from the masses to do so. So every time you see the number 70, it's a nod. It's a nod to God's desire to redeem the nations from their slavery to other gods. And so Exodus is this parable of how that redemption will happen over and over and over again throughout human history. Now, some of you still don't believe me. You need to turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 1, when Jesus sends out his followers on their first big mission. You ready for this? My translation, translation reads that when they counted how many people he sent out, it was 72. Now, why the two? Well, you need to know that there's a whole lot of earliest, earlier texts that say that number is 70. But here's the deal. Whether it's 70 or 72, that's a clear signal. Jesus is coming back and he's saying, and now I'm about to do the same thing that was being pictured in the Old Testament that God established in Genesis, that Exodus unpacked for us, and now we're ready to do it again. There's a new 70 that's going out to impact the world. This, I think, is exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. You've read this a thousand times and not realized what it meant. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. See what he's saying? He's saying our mission is not purely physical, though it's certainly not less than that. 
It's also spiritual, where we're trying to get people away from this tendency to bow down and worship gods that are not gods. Look, in other words, the people of God, we don't gather together Sunday in and Sunday out to relish the fact that we all got a golden ticket to heaven when we die. Oh, and by the way, try to read the Bible as often as you can, and don't cuss as much. (laughs) Is that why we're here? Honestly, I think that's a sad summary of most of American Christianity, but rather... We have been called into a battle against forces that we cannot see, but that are bringing innumerable pain and oppression to innumerable people. That's the battle. So already we see that we're connected to the past and secondly, reminded of the battle. And thirdly, and finally, we are redeemed to bring a healing. Look at what happened to the children of Israel when that, while they were left in Egypt, one seven. Because in case you get too depressed, it says... But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Okay, see that language? Did that sound familiar to you? Fruitful and multiply? That's Garden of Eden language. Remember Genesis 1.26? Where God looks at Adam and Eve and says, Go out there, be fruitful, and multiply. (laughs) But here's the kicker. Adam and Eve have already said in Genesis 3, We don't want to do that. We want, we want to be the ones with the knowledge of good and evil and determine what good and evil is. And, and then you've got chapter after chapter of this litany of human failures. But here's the deal. And this is what I think Moses is signaling by showing us that God was still blessing his people, even in slavery. Because even in the midst of all the failure of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and all of his 12 sons, he's still at work. He's still going. Despite their failures, he's still moving forward and marching forward to being a blessing to his people. Why? So they can be a blessing to the nations. Look, there's a couple pieces of application I want to talk about before we finish here. The first is this. God's pattern of living, what we might call his law, is a blessing. (laughs) There was something about God's sovereign lordship over these people that afforded them the blessings of expansion and health. So by the time we get to the story, they're big enough to threaten the only superpower of their day in Egypt. But all these pagan philosophies that lived in the nations around them, they weren't able to create human flourishing. Man, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of study to be done on what we would say about our own society, whether it really leads to human flourishing. Are people expanding? Are people getting better because of the role that God's playing in the world? He's at work. But secondly, and this is sort of the kicker, I think, God graciously keeps his promise despite his people's failures. And you're going to find out that these people that God has called out of Egypt are an absolute giant, wait, 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 they're a hot mess, as my daughters would say, right? So bad, actually, he's going to end up saying at one point that he even has the emotional signs of someone who wants to abandon them and start all over with Moses. But you know what? Time and time again, we see that he intervenes. He comes back again. Why? Because he's keeping his promises. And those promises were rooted in grace, not how good they are. The mission that God's people are on to repair the world is what it is because God is doing it, not us. He's on this mission. Mostly, frankly, we are part of the problem. I mean, mean, he's having to circumvent our best efforts to mess it up. Well, what's the point? Well, look, talk to the oldest of saints in the room sometime. Do you ever hear somebody who's old and been following the Lord for long say, yeah, 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 you know, 
I've been working hard, you know, um, finally God gave me what I deserved. Uh, live a happy life and uh, accoutrements of success, they all come to me because God gave them to me. Nobody talks that way. They look and be like, are you kidding? All these years he has rescued me from my being an idiot over and over and over again. How could I ever leave him now? Everybody talks that way. Look, so what this means is, is that Exodus is the birth of the people of God. The first time we begin to see the echoes of the church or if you want to use the language that we've employed here at Christ Presbyterian Church, it's the foundations of our home. Look, you've caught us the beginning of year two of a three-year preaching project that center around what we've established as the themes of this church. We are a group of people who found a hope. And so all last year, we talked about the gospel of Luke as it is our only hope in Jesus. But we also realized that hope created a home. And that home is the church. And so this year, we're going to talk about that in Exodus and Ephesians, an Old Testament and a New Testament example of how God is building us into a group. And then thirdly, in our third year, we're going to talk about that healing. And we're going to take a look at what God's will is for our lives through the Ten Commandments study next fall, Lord willing, and then the Sermon on the Mount in the spring of 2021. In other words, we're unpacking how God is walking us as a body to be faithful here. Because he knows, and we should know, <laughs> that we are thick with, with individual expression or with this um, expressive individualism. We are, in, we are sick with it. Nothing will make us more peculiar to the world, uh, to be different from the world, uh, than we'll begin to counter that particular notion. And again, never mind the actress, and I know I'm picking on, <laughs> I know I'm picking on Hollywood parenting today, so bear with me. Um, but I saved this tweet a couple, year, a couple of months ago just for this very type illustration. Um, listen to this young starlet's uh, impressions of her, the attitude of her four-and-a-half-month-old baby child. Four-and-a-half months old, okay? And how often she likes to take pictures and how often the child isn't interested in having pictures taken of her. Listen to the way she talks. You know, she really is her own person. Four-and-a-half months old. She's not here for my shenanigans. And if she doesn't feel like documented, which is most of the time, then she gives me this look like, I'm sorry, you haven't talked to my agent, and I'm not doing this for free. I love that sometimes she turns into shady baby. It's <laughs> my new phrase, shady baby. And shady baby is just somebody that's not going to dance for you when you say now. She's got her own mind at four and a half months. And I hope she keeps that same energy when she feels like smiling, she smiles. And when she doesn't, she doesn't. And either you catch her in the mood or you don't. But she's going to stay true to herself. That's the dream. And it's cool by me. Like when she smiles, I know I've earned it. <laughs> and, I've, and, and when she gives me shady baby, it's because I've probably earned that as well. Because I probably have my camera out. She'll be smiling and then I'll pull out the camera and she's like, man, we're not going to do this now. <laughs> like I said, I'm not picking on parenting styles. I'm just asking if you hear it. Do you hear that the purpose of life is to be true to myself from birth, four and a half months old? But I'm hoping this morning that maybe you've become a little disenchanted with that life <laughs> and maybe sort of thought to yourself, I don't know that that's really working for me or for us. And maybe, just maybe, I can invite you into a study this semester to stick with me to see a different look at, at, at what our purpose can be and what it means to flourish as a people as a person in the midst of a people.
And it all starts with God being on the move to create a people to assault the evil structures of the world and every bit of it by his grace. Come along with us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to see clearly? Because Father, when our eyes have been on nothing but ourselves and being true to ourselves, whatever in the world that means, it's hard to see that you have corporate ideas for us. It's hard to see. So we pray for your Holy Spirit this morning that might help us to see something different. And perhaps even through this, uh, through this study that we do through Exodus, we will understand more how you're building us and what you're building in us. Because we need that. Would you do that for us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.